But back to Israel and the revolutionary plan. Listen to this, verse 12. Now if their transgression is riches for the world, and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. Paul says, here's how I magnify my ministry. I seek to save Gentiles that my own people might become jealous and be saved. I mean, it's one thing for Paul to be the apostle to the Gentiles. It's another thing altogether. It's even a a higher goal to be the apostle to the Gentiles in hopes that that relationship and that the saving of the Gentile people will then turn around and make the Jews jealous that they might be saved too. Paul's not saying, I'm quite a guy as an apostle to the Gentiles. No, he's saying what really magnifies this is seeing how God's plan is being worked out through it all. Remember, Paul is a card-carrying member of the remnant of Israel in the first century. He is carrying on the fulfillment, if you will, of the servant songs of Isaiah. Servant songs? There are several servant songs in Isaiah, all of them speaking of the servant of the Lord, that is Jesus Christ. Isaiah 42, verse 6 says, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. What did Jesus call himself? I am the light of the world. So in that first servant song, he is called the light to the goyim, the light to the Gentiles. That's Jesus. Originally it was the call of Israel to be the light of the world, but Israel rejected that call. Jesus himself being the perfect Jew, accepted and fulfilled the call to bring a light to the Gentiles. Isaiah 49 verse 6. God says it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the Gentiles, the Goyim. A light to them as well. So that my salvation may reach to the very end of the earth. And so Paul says, my ministry is magnified in this. And that I am carrying on that fulfilled calling of the light of the world, the light to the Gentiles. I'm going to the Gentiles. But he not only works to bring light to the Gentiles, but he seeks the envy envy invoking or evoking uh, impact on Israel. He wants to see his own people saved. And now Paul realizes this is the way God planned all along for it to happen. Do you get that? God's plan from the beginning, knowing the heart of his people Israel, that they were stiff-necked and hard-hearted and somewhat jealous, they're going to reject me. So I'm going to go and accept outside of them and it's going to cause them to want what I'm doing over here. And it's going to bring them back around. It is revolutionary. Let me explain how this works. This whole idea of making Israel jealous. And I told you a couple Sundays ago, this is why we go to Israel. This is a very large part of it. That our relationship with Jesus would be seen. Would be experienced by others. Even our tour guide, our bus driver, those who are around us in the hotels and the kibbutz where we stay. And that they might see that we've got something here. Something good. Something they want. And it happens to me every time I drive by Snow Goose Produce in the summertime. 
Because you see, you see people standing outside and they've got those ice cream cones. Have you gotten an ice cream cone at Snow Goose Produce? Okay, if you haven't gotten one, you need to. They're ridiculous. I get the child size, and it's not because I dance ballet. I get the child size. <laughs> Just kidding. I get the child size because it's huge. The child size is like the size of my head on a little cone. And I'll tell you, why do I bring that up? Because it is not difficult to convince someone to try something that you love. Snow Goose Produce Ice Cream Cones. How much do I need to say to convince you to pop in there on a hot day and get some ice cream? And it's the same idea. The grace of God in Christ Jesus. It's marvelous. It's a wonderful thing. You know, the Crusaders came along, and with Israel they tried conversion. Convert or die. Didn't work, did it? It just hardened Israel more. Debaters come along, and they try to reason with the Jewish people and argue the point, and it doesn't work. It just hardens the heart more. But when you come along with a love relationship with God, and by the way, it doesn't just work with Israel, it works with non-Christians too. You try to debate, you try to force your will, you try to show them how wrong and immoral and sin-sick they are, you're not going to get anywhere. But you show them a love relationship with Jesus? You show them in your own life that you're walking in grace and how marvelous it is? Now that's a conversation people will have. That's something that intrigues people. That makes them jealous. And it's a good godly jealousy. Let them see what you have in Christ. And if you don't know the goodness of the Lord in your relationship with Jesus, you don't know grace. You've yet to understand how marvelous it truly is. It changes everything about us. It lifts the countenance. It encourages the heart. And it gives us an opportunity to walk in this world as graced people. And that's when people say, as we've said before, I want what He has. I want to taste some of that. I want to stop by that church on a hot Sunday and see what's going on inside. Because I hear there's grace there. And Paul says that's what's going on. Grace. Here's the revolutionary plan of God. Watch the revolution. It all revolves around Christ Jesus. And then it goes to the Jew first. And it picks up speed, picking up the Greek, the Gentile. And it makes a final revolution back around to the Jew, making them jealous for what the Gentile has. It is the revolutionary, literally, the revolutionary plan of God. And it is brilliant. And we've tried all sorts of different ways, but our ways don't work. Know this. He said... If their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? And the word is pleroma, and it is the same word that's used down in verse 25. Does this sound familiar? Fullness. If their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness be? Well, down in verse 25, he says a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Guess what? There will be a fullness of Israel as well. Fullness of the Gentiles first. And when it comes in, as we said Sunday, when that last person stands up and says, Yes, Lord, and we go... Then the plan kicks in over time for the Jewish people and there will be a fullness of the remnant saved. A fullness of Israel. The remnant representing the entire nation. And again, it is revolutionary. Look at it this way. Nobody is cast off. 
Nobody is excluded by God. The only exclusion to this revolutionary plan is the choice of the individual to reject it. That's truly the only way someone can be excluded from salvation is to say no thank you and walk away. Otherwise, you're saved. If you will say yes to the grace of Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 15, if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? You might call that the revolution of resurrection. Once Israel comes to the acceptance of Messiah, resurrection. And Ezekiel saw it, didn't he? That valley of starched, dry, sun-baked bones. And suddenly, they start rattling. In Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 5, Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, that you may come back to life. I will put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin and put breath in you, that you may come alive and that you will know that I am the Lord. And it is a prophecy of Israel coming to life again. And right now in the land, bones are rattling, gang. Skeletons are standing up. Organs are appearing and flesh and sinew and muscle and skin are covering the skeletons and they're standing there, dead, unalive, unaware, secular. But guess what? The day is fast approaching when they will come alive. In the Lord, the remnant will come alive. Now as Paul continues to unpack this great plan of God for both Israel and the church, we come to number three, what it all depends on, and that is the root. The root. Verse 16. If the first peace is holy, the lump is also. Okay, I don't know what that means. We'll have to come back to that on Sunday, I guess. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. If the root is holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Now hold that thought. He's mid-sentence, but hold it right there. We already talked about this, but let me clarify, make sure we're all on the same page. The rich root of the olive tree is Jesus. I went back to my commentaries today. I read through I listened to a couple of different teachers, just curious what they would say about this. And most are calling the rich root Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I mean, really, throughout, throughout, all, all the good Christian commentarians. These are guys that, that I read and I rely on, and I look at them. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob doesn't go deep enough. You've got to go back further. The root of this whole thing. The root is Jesus. The rich root of the olive tree is Jesus. And he said as much at the end of the book, Revelation 22.16, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Jesus is the root. And I'm absolutely convinced of it. And I would stake my faith on this. I believe Jesus is the root. He is the one from whom comes all the nutrients of the rich olive tree itself. Well, what's the olive tree? You're getting ahead of me. I'll tell you in a minute. Jesus is the rich root of the olive tree. Secondly, the broken branches then are Israel. The broken branches are Israel. And when Paul says this, branches were broken off in verse 17. 
He has Jeremiah in view. Jeremiah chapter 11 verse 16. You might jot this in in your uh, uh, margins there. It's an important passage. Jeremiah 11.16 The Lord called your name a green olive tree, beautiful in fruit and in form. This was God's description of Israel. Israel is actually referred to in three different ways as far as horticulture is concerned. Gardening, an olive tree, a vine, and anyone know what the third one is? Fig tree. Olive tree, vine, and fig tree. Those are the three Descriptions of Israel, the three plants in the Hebrew Scriptures that God uses as pictures of Israel. And Jeremiah 11.16, the Lord called Israel a green olive tree, beautiful in fruit and form, but something tragic happens. As that verse continues, Jeremiah prophesies, with the noise of a great tumult, he has kindled fire on it, and its branches are worthless. Israel, you are a beautiful green olive tree, but your branches have become useless. Why would God do that to His chosen people? Because as Hebrews 11.6 tells us, without faith, it is impossible to please Him. That was Israel's problem. We've been over this so many times, I can't even count it. Faith is the issue. Faith was Israel's problem. It wasn't keeping law that was the problem, although they couldn't keep it. It was faith. It was trusting the Lord. The branches became fuel for the fire because of no faith. Now, that's not across the board. Remember, there's always a remnant of believing Israel. Always. Elijah's day, 7,000 were faithful to the Lord. The rest were not. They were chasing the Baals. Remember that, that there are always faithful Jews. But the lack of faith caused the branches to be broken off of the tree. And then, the wild Olive represents who? The church. Gentiles. Grafted in. Verse 18. He says, let me start in verse 17 again and get get a running start. If some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive, and Cheryl wants a t-shirt that just calls her wild olive, that's what she wants, were grafted in among them and become partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, the rich root being Jesus Do not be arrogant toward the branches. And the branches are Israel. Do not be arrogant toward Israel. And how many decades, centuries, was the church arrogant toward the branches? Why? Because no one was reading Romans 11. People were missing the word, not hearing it, didn't know any better. And he says, if you are arrogant, remember, it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. I want to make a point here. This is so important to get. The root being Jesus. My primary motivation for how I treat Israel or anyone is Him. Is because of the root, not because of the branches. He says, don't be arrogant toward the branches but if you are arrogant remember it's not you who supports the root it's the root that supports you because of the root don't be arrogant to the branches it's because of Jesus it's not because I owe Israel something although as we talked about recently we could make a case for owing Israel a lot that has been handed down to us over the centuries 
But even if you reject all that, I don't know Israel anything, but I know that I owe Jesus everything. And because I owe the root everything, I have no right to be arrogant to the branches. Even if someone in their Christianity does not understand the plan of God for Israel, simply because of the root who is Jesus, I must have love for the Jewish people. And I must, by the way, have love for the lost in this world. Why? Because as Paul writes, 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Talking about the church. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So for the, for the sake of Christ Jesus... I will love Israel. For the sake of Christ Jesus, I will not be arrogant toward the branches, nor will I be arrogant to all the wild olives out there not grafted in. Oh, well, I'm the church. And you're sinners. Losers. No. No, the love of Christ controls and compels and drives and leads and moves us. Because of the root We are not to be arrogant. Verse 19. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. And you stand, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not, watch this, if God did not spare the natural branches, He will not spare you either Hmm. behold the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity but to you God's kindness if you continue in his kindness otherwise and I have this underlined in my Bible you also will be cut off if what if I don't continue in his kindness you know what that is John calls it the perseverance of the saints. There is a call on the life of every follower of Jesus to persevere in kindness, to persevere in grace, to continue in the love of Christ. To live our lives walking in the very spirit of Christ. Now, I want you to note the contrast of these two words describing the one and same God. Kindness. That word kindness, Christotes, in the Greek, it means gentle, easy to bear. Same word is used by Jesus when He says, My yoke is easy, Christos. My burden is light. And so, note the kindness of the Lord. Easy, gentle, the gentleness of God. By contrast, and the severity Severity is apotomia. And it's an important word to know because literally it means a sharp cut. Note the sharp cut of God. What does that mean? The word is used in, in the common Greek. It's used to describe apotomia, an unapproachable height. A sharp cut of a mountain, unclimbable. You can't get there. It's too severe, too difficult, too hard. 
so what is Paul talking about when he says, no, both the kindness and the severity of God? Gang, he's talking about having a humble, gracious attitude of approach to the Lord. No, you are saved because of His goodness, His ease, His kindness. But you need to understand, He is unapproachable. He is beyond climbing. He is a height that you cannot attain to except for His kindness. The severity. You don't approach a climb of Mount Everest with a water bottle and a fanny pack. That would be ill-advised. And so you don't approach God with, Yeah, say what up, God? No problem. See you next Christmas. That's approaching God with a water bottle. Will I go Easter too? Okay, you get the fanny pack. You understand what I'm saying here? How we approach God? We are saved by His kindness. Praise the Lord. But He is God. He is perfect. He is severe. He is unclimbable. Understand that. Who we're dealing with here. But is he saying that he might cut us off? I mean, that's, that's what we just read. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise, you also will be cut off. I thought I was always saved. Alright, hold that thought. Verse 23, again. They also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from, from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Horticulture. Olive trees are amazing trees. You see them all over Israel. I think I've told you before, it's so weird. I grew up in Mission Viejo, California when, when the community was first planned back in the early 60s. And it was way out there in the boonies. And it was not the, the kind of wealthy place that it is today. It was truly the, the sticks. But every front yard of every home on Saddleback Drive where I grew up had an olive tree. I didn't even know. I didn't even know it was for eating. My brother and I just threw them at each other. We had olive wars across the street. That's what we thought it was for. And I, I remember as a kid spending many days climbing to the top of the olive tree. I just sit up there. We didn't have Nintendo yet. So we just sit, you know, look around. And that olive tree is still there. It's still in my parents' front yard. Lo, these many years later, you go to Israel, olive trees are everywhere. You go to the Mount of Olives. Go down to Gashmon, Gethsemane. There are gardens there. We were privileged this last time, our group, to go into a garden of olive trees, a private garden, close a door behind us, and it was this open-air garden, and we could wander among the trees and sit and worship, and it was marvelous. One of my favorite times in the entire tour. One of the many. And there are huge, old, gnarly, knotted olive trees there. There are some trees there that by count are over 2,000 years old. Trees on the Mount of Olives today that were standing in Jesus' day. How is that possible? I mean, it's just amazing to me. And to look at them, some of them look completely dead. They do. They're these big, hulking, kind of 
Again, gnarly knotted trunks, and they're hollowed out inside. And they just look like there's no life. But down on the side, maybe on a corner, there's a tiny little shoot. And it's the new life of the tree. And that's how the olive trees grow. They grow on the outside. They continue to, they they might look dead for years. And all of a sudden, a little shoot pops up. And the tree is still alive. Why? Because it's got a rich root. The rich root of the tree is feeding up into the tree itself, up through the trunk, and this little shoot pops out and starts to grow. Next thing you know, it starts to produce olives again. It's bizarre. These, these trees, according to conventional wisdom, for centuries believed that, well, Paul was a little out of his element in what he wrote here in Romans 11. The way he describes the olive tree and the grafting in of the white olive and all that and the breaking off of the branches, it just, you know, nice try, Mr. Green Thumb. You know, Paul, you're a city boy. You don't understand these things. And truly, there are commentaries out there right now that talk about how Paul didn't know what he was talking about, but it's okay. It was a spiritual example he was using. (laughs) I love when people do that. I love when people look at Scripture and go, well, this is wrong, but we'll give them a pass because, you know, Paul was not from the country. See, Paul's not writing this letter, is he? No, the Spirit of God is. And if the Spirit of God doesn't know how to grow and cultivate a tree, we got a problem. Because he's the maker of the trees, right? So the experts said only well-cultivated olive trees could produce good virgin olive oil. Wild olives are basically dry and oil-free and and useless. So the idea of grafting in a wild olive doesn't make sense at all because wild olives are no good. You need to take the time to cultivate the good olive tree. And if you want to graft in, you can do that. But you need to graft in from another healthy olive tree, a cultivated olive tree, graft into the old olive tree, and then that will regenerate and bring new life to the old trunk. And that works. But grafting in this wild thing? Yeah. I like that wild thing. That's us. Grafted in. Doesn't really work in real life. Until someone discovered the writings of one Lucius Junius Moderatus Columnella. I know you're all familiar with his work. He wrote a 12-volume set called Res Rustica that is still considered a masterpiece of cultivation. He was born in 4 A.D. A first century Roman, one of the most prolific writers, or considered the most prolific writer of the first century on agriculture throughout the entire Roman Empire. And Columnella wrote what was common first century practice with a non-productive olive tree. First, the dead branches are broken off so that sunlight can come in and oxygen can be received on the inside of the tree and the tree can be refreshed and that rich root that's down in the ground can begin to feed the old tree again. And then, grafting in a wild olive shoot was actually preferable in the first century because that would cause a tree to be reinvigorated and suddenly start to grow in the rich established root supplies again. Those nutrients that come up through that old dead trunk and out into the wild olive branch that then ultimately is so grafted in, you've seen a grafting, right, that really works? After a while, you can't tell it's grafted anymore. And by the way, I would say that we Christians were once grafted in, but now you can't tell. We're just part of the tree. The olive tree. And it turns out, city boy Paul was absolutely right. Because he wrote by the Spirit of God. But here's the remarkable thing. 
It's not that the wild olive branches are grafted in. That was done in the first century all the time. What's remarkable and the supernatural thing is that God declares He's going to take these old, dead, cut-off branches and He's going to graft them back to life. And again, we're right back to the revolution of resurrection. The resurrective power of the root. God is able to graft them in again, verse 23. And that is something not even Columnella came up with. No horticulturist of history would ever achieve something like this. An old dead branch, try to graft that in, it's not going to work. No, not naturally, but supernaturally, you better believe it can work. And this is a beautiful theology that contradicts, and here's the theology to get. This is the doctrine to understand. What's contradicted here is once lost, always lost. We spend so much time arguing over the... Well, not us here, but people do. Christians spend so much time arguing over once saved, always saved. Oh, for crying out loud. If you're saved, you know you're saved, and you love Jesus and He loves you, why would you be anything else? The real question is, is there once lost, always lost? Israel's lost right now, gang. The the nation itself, secular Israel, is lost. They're out there. It's like, oh no, what's going to happen? They're going to be regrafted in. Old, dead, broken off branches, supernaturally rejoined to the tree. And the key to this cultivation is faith. Faith. Again, Zechariah 12.10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. They will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Israel will see Jesus and faith will explode and they will weep over what was lost, but also over who is gained as they see the wounded Christ returning. Faith. Remember I told you Sunday Jesus said in Matthew 23, 39, I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What does that mean, Jesus? It means they're going to say it. It means the remnant will return to faith. Like old dead branches stuck back on a tree, supernaturally they're going to come back to life. Marvelously. 2 Corinthians 3.19 tells us whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away, and so it will be with Israel. And so David writes, listen, Psalm 52.8, As for me, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the loving kindness of God forever and ever. Now I told you, The olive tree is but one picture of Israel in the Hebrew Scriptures. We don't have enough time to go into the others, but let me tell you this much. The vine, the vine, and it's talked about in the parable of the vineyard, Isaiah chapter 5. The vine is a picture of spiritual Israel. The heart of Israel. A fig tree. The fig tree is the picture of the nation of Israel. National Israel. As Jesus says, you look at the fig tree. You see that it's beginning to bud and blossom. You know summer's near. So it is, Jesus says, the generation alive at this time, at the budding of the fig tree, will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Matthew 24. The fig tree is national Israel. A national symbol of Israel, even in the Hebrew Scriptures. And the olive tree. If the vine is spiritual... And the fig tree is national. What is the olive tree? It's millennial. Oh, not like millennials today. 
in our culture. It's millennial as in gang. It is the picture of the coming kingdom. The olive tree is the most symbolic of Israel in the kingdom. The olive tree. That's why David says, I'm like a green olive tree in the house of God. Because he was at the height of the kingdom. Israel as a kingdom was reigning there on the earth in that small place. And Solomon's kingdom, again as we talked about Sunday, spread out huge like the sand of the seashore. The olive tree. And then the olive tree went dead. Branches were broken off. And people looked at the tree for a time and said, Ah, it's nothing. It's a desolation. And then these wild shoots grafted in suddenly began to grow on the same root of the same kingdom that once was Israel, but now seemed dead. Now suddenly there's this whole new thing growing on this same trunk of the same tree. The kingdom. We are kingdom people, right? Citizens of the kingdom. Grafted into the olive tree which represents the kingdom of God. Guess what? As Israel is regrafted in, what happens? They will enter into the millennial kingdom. That's the olive tree. That's the picture throughout scripture. And it is number four. Quickly, number four, the restoration. The restoration. Oh man, we're over time. Verse 25. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And so all Israel will be saved, or as Paul said above, the fullness of Israel. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Oh, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Simply meaning, at that time in the first century, the Jews were attacking the Christians, were against the Christians who were presenting the gospel. So they came off as enemies. But, Paul says, from the standpoint of God's choice, or God's elect... They're beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God, verse 29, are irrevocable. Zion, the deliverer, he says, will come from Zion. Zion in history was the Davidic kingdom. Zion presently, well, presently Zion is political. And it is politically charged for Jews right now in this day. Zion or Zionism is synonymous with coming back to the homeland, the Jewish homeland. For those who are opposed to Israel, like those of the leadership in Iran, they talk about the Zionists as if it were some kind of a byword. Biblically speaking, biblically speaking, Zion speaks of the same thing as the olive tree, and that is the coming kingdom. Zion, for David, Zion was the kingdom. It wasn't just Israel, it wasn't just Jerusalem, it was the kingdom. And so for us, Zion is the kingdom. And that word for kingdom, that word Zion, speaking of the messianic kingdom is used seven times exactly in the New Testament. Which is kind of cool. A complete picture. Five times it quotes Hebrew prophecy, and in the last time, two times Zion is used. Hebrews 12.22 You've come to Mount Zion. 
to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood. And then the last time, last time we see the word Zion used, Revelation 14, verse 1. I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion. And with Him 144,000 having His name and the name of His Father written on their foreheads, there in Zion, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, in the kingdom, at the outset of that millennial kingdom, as the olive tree is huge and beautiful and spreading out once again. Israel in the homeland. Do you see how this is all about God's faithfulness from start to finish? Well, we'll finish. Verse 30, just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient. But because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. It is perfectly fair, completely just. Verse 32, For God has shut up all in disobedience so that He may show mercy to all. Huh, kind of like Elijah's reign. As He shut up the rain in the days of Elijah. So now God has shut up the mercy that ultimately He may allow the deluge of grace to come to all. How did God shut up all in disobedience? Well, for the Gentile, he gave us a conscience. And the moment conscience set in, (laughs) well, we got disobedient. For the Jew, he gave the law. And the moment the law came in, the Jew was disobedient. In either case, no one is righteous. No, not one. We need the deluge of God's grace. Number five, the riches. The riches. Verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became His counselor? Would you be His counselor? Would you tell God this is how it really ought to go in my life? I mean, really? What's remarkable is that sometimes we do. Lord, if you would only listen to me, we could make this right. I have a plan here. Follow my plan, Lord. And Paul quotes Isaiah 40, verse 13 there. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become His counselor? Who has the wisdom to become advisor to God? Only one I can think of. John three thirty four. John the Baptist said, He whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for He gives the Spirit without measure. Verse 35, Who has first given to Him, that it might be paid back to Him again. For from Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen.